welcome again to Burr and Foreman's podcast series. My name is Ed Snow, and I'm a partner in the firm's Atlanta office where I practice commercial lending and electronic signature law. We're excited to continue with episode two of our series on electronic signatures or e-signatures. For this episode, we're going to be talking about electronic contracts being admitted into courtroom evidence and some of the challenges and tips for doing that. For this discussion today, I would like to welcome my co-host and colleague, Jonathan Sykes. Jonathan is a partner in Byrne Foreman's Orlando office and a member of the law firm's Creditors' Rights and Bankruptcy Practice Group. His practice focuses on a wide variety of bankruptcy and litigation matters, including debtor, creditor, and trustee representation in bankruptcy and in state and federal court litigation. Jonathan, thank you again for speaking with me today on this podcast as we talk about admission of electronic contracts into evidence. Let's get started. Let's start from what is probably the most basic question on this topic. Can electronic evidence and contracts be admitted into evidence in a court proceeding? Thank you, Ed. Uh, The simple, easy answer to that question is yes. The Uniform Electronic Transactions Act which I'll refer to uh, by its short name, UETA, provides that in a proceeding, evidence of a record or signature may not be excluded solely because it is in electronic form. According to the official comments of the UETA, the purpose of this provision is to ensure that evidence is not excluded based solely on the media in which the information is presented. The primary function of this provision is to validate and destigmatize evidence presented in electronic form that is covered by the UETA. The official comment goes on to say, however, that nothing in the UETA is intended to relieve a party or lawyer from establishing the necessary evidentiary foundation for admissibility of evidence. Like all evidence, electronic contracts and electronic records may be legally valid under the UETA, but may still not be admissible in a court proceeding. Okay, well, that, that's a, a sobering question that they may not be admissible. So let's start with some of the hurdles that someone might face Uh, in admitting electronic contracts into evidence in a court proceeding. Could you uh, speak to that? Sure, absolutely. So whenever any electronic record or contract is offered into evidence in a court proceeding, like any other type of evidence, the proponent of the evidence must clear a series of evidentiary hurdles. And failure to clear any one of those hurdles might mean that the record or contract is not admissible. Uh, I always recommend reading the case of Lorraine versus Markel American Insurance Company, which took place in Maryland back in 2007. It contains a very comprehensive and systematic analysis of all of the evidentiary hurdles that may be applicable to electronic evidence or electronic records or contracts. And sometimes, and I might often refer to it as this, sometimes electronic evidence is referred in court to electronically stored information. Today, I want to really just discuss and focus on two small pieces 
of those hurdles today, which pose unique problems in the context of admitting electronic contracts. That is authentication and the original writing rule. Every state has its own rules governing evidence, but most every state models its rules after the federal rules of evidence, which are generally applicable in federal district courts. So when I talk about the rules of evidence today, I'm going to refer only to the federal rules of evidence, mostly because it's just an easy reference point for the purposes of our discussion. So let's go back to the topic at hand, authentication. The process of authentication simply tests whether an electronic contract or record admitted in court is what it purports to be. Authentication is governed by Rule 901A of the Federal Rules of Evidence. I don't want anyone to get confused. When I use the word authentication, it's referring to a more narrow meaning that's applied in court proceedings. Of course, if you've listened to Chapter 1 of this series, you'll know from Mr. Snow that authenticate under the UETA and the UCC has a different, more broader meaning, which is to sign or adopt a contract document or record. When I use the term today, I'm really only referring to the more narrow meaning applicable to the rules of evidence in court proceedings. I also want to get another issue out of the way before I dive into the fun, exciting topic of authentication. There's another concept similar to authentication called attribution, which refers to whether a particular signature on an electronic contract can be attributed to a particular author. I'm going to circle back if we have time, discuss what attribution means in the context of evidence in court. But for now, um, I just want to point out that attribution, although it may be an element of proof required at trial, if the opposing party denies signing a contract bearing his or her signature, you may not need to deal with attribution in authenticating a document. The signature alone, even if the opposing party denies it being his or putting it there, the signature alone may be sufficient to authenticate an electronic contract. There is an unwarranted stigma surrounding electronic contracts that sometimes results in a greater level of scrutiny in authenticating electronic contracts in court. But the burden for authentication of an electronic contract should be treated under the UETA the same as any other piece of evidence. The stigma around electronic contracts and electronic records in general probably arises because most people believe that electronic records are somehow more susceptible to forgery. The UET advisory committee note, however, points out that authentication should present only a quote-unquote slight obstacle to admissibility. You simply need to show the jury that the electronic contract could be what it purports to be. You don't have to prove conclusively that the electronic contract is in fact a contract or even a document. Rule 901 subsection B of the Federal Rules of Evidence contains a list of examples of ways in which you can authenticate records. But that list is not exhaustive. So let's talk about a case as an illustration. There is a good discussion of authentication of electronic records in a case out of Pennsylvania called NRAFP. 
NRAFP is a juvenile delinquency case about one kid beating up another kid for stealing his DVD. The issue on appeal in that case was whether the court properly admitted instant messages, IMs, between the two children. The objecting party argued that given the inherent unreliability of electronic communication, the state should be required to prove authorship of the IMs by introducing the source of the IMs from the internet service provider, otherwise known as an ISP, or producing some kind of computer forensics expert. The appellate court disagreed and concluded that the instant messages were properly authenticated through circumstantial evidence and that a computer forensic expert is not required. The state was not required to try to track down the source of the instant messages. So what kind of circumstantial evidence did the court review in NRAFP? Well, first, there's three primary categories. The first one is the offering party's testimony that he believed the other screen name belonged to the other party. The second category is the actual contents of the instant messages themselves, including the use of the other party's name. And then the third one is third-party witness testimony about events that were described in the instant messages. I think another good circumstantial evidence case is the case of United States versus Siddiqui. This was a case from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals back in 2000. In Siddiqui, the 11th Circuit allowed the authentication of an email entirely through circumstantial evidence, like an NRAFP, which included the presence of the defendant's work email address, use of the defendant's nickname in the email, and testimony by third-party witnesses that the defendant spoke to them about the events described in the email. Again, that testimony may be excluded under normal circumstances under the hearsay rule, but for purposes of authentication, it will be allowed. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm glad you, you point these things out because when I talk to clients right now, for instance, who are trying to move to an electronic signature platform for closing deals during the COVID-19 outbreak, they are uneasy about electronic signatures because, again, they don't see anyone do it, doing it, and it's like they're doing it behind closed doors. And as you point out, courts are still using what I would say old-fashioned rules of evidence, and those still apply. And your comments here should help people get more comfortable with concepts of attribution and authentication and be able to use electronic signatures. Let me ask you this. Are there other ways to authenticate an electronic contract? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked about that because I want to talk about some probably easier ways to authenticate than through use of third-party witness testimony. The first easiest way would be to try to get to a stipulation with the other side before trial that you're not going to object to the authentication of certain documents. But if you can't obtain a pretrial stipulation, maybe the second easiest way is to authenticate an electronic contract through the discovery process. A document that is produced by the other side in discovery will be implicitly authentic. This was affirmed by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in a 1998 case called Indianapolis Minority Contractors Association versus Wiley. 
where that court said a party cannot voluntarily produce documents and implicitly represent their authenticity and then contend they cannot be used by the other party because authenticity is lacking. So let me picture it for you. You're in court. And the other side gave you a document in the discovery process. You go to admit it and they say, hey, that document is not what it claims to be. I think the objecting party in that scenario would have a hard time explaining to the judge or the jury why they produced an unauthentic document. It should go without saying that a document produced by the other side in discovery is implicitly authentic. You may also need testimony that the document was received from the other side in response to a request for production. Another way to easily authenticate an electronic contract is to introduce the document in a deposition of someone with personal knowledge and ask that person to identify the document. It's really as simple as, in most contract cases, I'm going to depose the counterparty to that contract. During my deposition, I'll present them with a copy of the contract and say, do you recognize this document? The moment they say yes, I have authenticated that document through their testimony, and I can then use that deposition transcript if authenticity is later challenged at the trial. Rule 901B1 states that a document can be authenticated by testimony of a witness that the document is what it is claimed to be. Again, ideally, you will be able to depose one of the actual people who prepared or signed the electronic contract and ask them to identify the contract. But if you cannot get the testimony of a party with personal knowledge of the creation or execution of the contract, then you can also authenticate an electronic contract through a witness with personal knowledge of the process by which the record was produced, created, or acquired, and then maintained and preserved without alteration. A lot of the time we'll see this when banks or lenders are trying to authenticate computerized payment history. They will authorize a representative to testify for the bank who probably had nothing to do with the actual creation of that loan payment history, but is certainly someone with specific personal knowledge of how the computer system works, the accuracy of the computer system, and how the computer printouts are generated in an accurate form in the form that is presented in the court proceeding. Thank you, Jonathan. We hope this discussion was useful and provided some takeaways that you can bring back to your company and your business. Since there's a lot to talk about on this topic, we will break this up into two parts. The next episode in this series continues our discussion where we can talk about how the authentication process can sometimes go wrong, how the original writing rule could come into play, and what happens if the opposing party denies signing an electronic signature. To download part two and find future podcasts, please visit burr.com. That's B-U-R-R.com. If you have questions or need advice regarding the use of electronic signatures for your business, you can reach Jonathan at jsykes at burr.com. That's J-S-Y-K-E-S at burr.com. And my email is esnow at burr.com. That's E-S-N-O-W at burr.com. Thank you again for joining us.